listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future of the United States and the long 19th century. In this episode, Stephanie Peoples-Tavera guides listeners through her experiences of archival and recovery work, from encountering manuscripts at the American Jewish Archives to curating a book edition of a lesser-known manuscript involving graduate students in contributions to digital archives. Hope you enjoy. You are listening to Dr. Stephanie Peebles-Tavera. I am an early career researcher in late 19th and early 20th century American women's literature. During the week of spring break in March 2015, I visited the Jacob Rader Marcus Center of the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, Ohio, in search of the manuscript for Helen Brent, M.D., an 1892 novel by Annie Nathan Meyer that centers on the experiences of a woman doctor. This was my first ever trip to a physical archive, and I did not fully know what to expect. At the time, I was a doctoral candidate at the University of Texas at Arlington and in the process of writing my dissertation about women's medical fiction. I had found a reference to Helen Brent, MD, in the footnotes of Kristen Swenson's Medical Women and Victorian Fiction, published in 2005, and another reference in Stephanie Browner's Profound Science and Elegant Literature, also published in 2005. So I went in search of the manuscript. I found an incomplete version of the medical novel on the open access digital archive HathiTrust. But I soon discovered that the only way I was going to access a complete manuscript was to actually visit the archive that housed Annie Nathan Meyer's papers. You might expect the Annie Nathan Meyer papers to be housed at Barnard College, given that Meyer founded the college and served as one of its board members for much of her life. And they do. Barnard Archives house manuscripts for many of Meyer's nonfiction books, like The Gallery Goer's Book, and plays like The Advertising of Kate and Black Souls. They also have her correspondence pertaining to the founding of the college itself. But through some sleuthing online and in footnotes and endnotes of scholarly texts, I discovered that the manuscript for Helen Brent, MD, is located at the American Jewish Archives. So I reached out to them. I learned what a finding aid is. And before I knew it, I was making plans to visit and apply for university funding to travel to the archives. My edition of that novel came out with Hastings College Press in October 2020. This episode of the C19 podcast will reflect on my journey of archival and recovery work as an early career scholar who is taking stock of where I've been and where I'm going next, how I began archival and recovery work in graduate school, the skills I learned along the way, the people I met who have shaped my work, and what my future career might look like based on the careers of scholars I admire. I am currently an assistant professor of English and the Bill Yowell Junior Faculty Fellow for the College of Arts and Sciences at Texas A&M University Central Texas. I am also the author of Prescription Narratives, Feminist Medical Fiction and the Failure of American Censorship, which is my first book, my monograph, that came out last July 2022 with Edinburgh University Press. Archival and recovery work plays a significant role in my monograph because much of women's medical fiction remains unrecovered. This episode is also about the joys and challenges of archival and recovery work more generally, since my journey is not the only way to do this work, even as it might offer a starting point or advice for other graduate students and early career researchers who are also navigating this field. In this episode, I will be joined by archivist Dana Herman, mid-career scholars Bridget Fielder, and Lori Harrison-Kahn, and senior scholar Mary Chapman, all of whom will give further context to the various ways one might engage in archival and recovery work. 
In addition to being the founder of Barnard College, Annie Nathan Meyer was the wife of Dr. Alfred Meyer, a respected pulmonologist in New York City during the late 19th and early 20th century. Together, Annie and her husband worked as health reformers in New York City, advocating for street cleaning, improved sanitary methods, and health education in the prevention of tuberculosis. Annie also advocated for sexual hygiene education, which we would today call sexual health education or sex ed. Alfred, meanwhile, founded the Mount Sinai Hospital Nurses Training School, where Annie lectured on a few occasions. Helen Brent, MD, tells the story of a woman gynecologist who was working to end a syphilis epidemic in New York City during the last decade of the 19th century, as well as the challenges she faces from her patients and the community as a woman physician. If we are starting at the beginning of my journey, we must begin with the brilliant archivists at the American Jewish Archives who helped me navigate the Annie Nathan Meyer papers on my first visit and have since helped me manage permissions in the process of recovering Helen Brent, MD. Here with me today is Dana Herman from the American Jewish Archives. Dana is very familiar with the Annie Nathan Meyer papers, among other collections. Dana, tell us about what you do at the archives. So my role is a director of research and collections at the American Jewish Archives, which is located uh, on the campus of Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. And um, I wear a number of hats. First and foremost, I oversee, as you said, the archives, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is vast and a, a busy place. And um, and it's 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 a wonderful job because I get to meet people like you and other scholars who are doing really fascinating work. And I get to help them navigate the archive and help them find what they're looking for. Can you um, talk a little bit about the special collections or actually how many collections do you have before we get to the finding aid? Right. So, yeah. So, you know, we've been around, the archives has been around since 1947 and we're really one of two national uh, archives in the United States that deal exclusively with, with American Jewish history, with the American Jewish experience that goes back to 1654. So it, our collection is, is quite, um, vast. <laughs> uh, yes. So the finding example, age is large. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really large. We, so Annie Nathan Meyer is one manuscript collection that we have, and we have over 900 of these, what we call manuscript collections, you know, which are oftentimes a, a Hollinger box or more of documents, material. And then, of course, we have smaller collections as well, which we actually call small collections. And, um, <laughs> Other other uh, material that we call near print, which is kind of ephemera, uh, pamphlets and things that we've collected over the years on people, organizations, uh, places, and uh, we have audiovisual material, photographs. I mean, it's it's if I were to take you back into our repository, you would find uh, four floors uh, with compact shelving which contain millions and millions of documents and audiovisual material. Uh, you know, really one of a kind things that can't be found anywhere else in the world. And that's what makes it such a magical place to, to, to live, uh, to live, to work and to, and to research. I feel like I do live there often. <laughs> when I was there for the, you know, intensive spring break week, I felt like I lived there too, but I was staying in the sisterhood dormitory. So I kind of, Oh, you really did live on campus. Yeah. Can you talk for a minute about what is a finding aid and why are they useful for starting research? 
Right. So I think that is kind of a misconception that a lot of people have, right, is that they think nowadays, in particular, with increased digitization, um, a lot of people assume that they can find all of the material online. Like, why isn't why aren't the documents just online? Right. Well, it's just we have too many documents to put everything up online. But what we do make available are these finding aids or inventories to these large manuscript collections. So when a, when a collection comes in, it's processed by the archivists, and it's their efforts to make sense out of the collection, to organize it so that researchers like you um, can look at these finding aids, right, get a sense of what the collection contains, mm -hmm. and it literally has a box and folder listing for that collection. So, and the folder listings hopefully are helpful enough so that a researcher can say, wow, okay, Annie Nathan Meyer, look at this. She's got this manuscript dated from, you know, whatever, 1889. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think I want to see that. And you would either, if you were to come to Cincinnati, you would, you know, we would pull that material for you. If you were unable to visit Cincinnati um, for a small fee, we would be able to scan uh, a certain amount of material and send it to you digitally. So that's kind of what we do. We, most of our days are spent either working with researchers in person or really helping researchers uh, via distance who email us from around the world and say, look, I can't make it to Cincinnati right now, but I really would like to see, you know, these particular folders from this collection. Can you make them available to me? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, it's call number, as, you know, when you're looking in the library for a particular book, it's kind of like a call number. or Exactly. Address. I always tell yeah. people, yes, our, our archival catalog is very similar to a library catalog, right? You don't find the book necessarily online, just like you wouldn't find the archival material online. Right. What you do find is a catalog record of that material, a description, a very detailed, oftentimes d detailed description of of the collections to help you the researcher so usually when scholars visit the archives they do so knowing that they will have limited resources such as time and money um, and they have to sort through these folders and documents rather quickly to find what they're looking for and then sometimes what they don't know that they're looking for for instance i found letters between um, meyer and her editor jeanette gilder and i started transcribing them um, so they have to make copies or scans very quickly and then um, process what they find after the trip because they often don't have time to read through and you know, sort of document or process everything in the moment. And the finding aid certainly helps make this more efficient so that you can, you know, look for, identify, and then pull exactly what you're looking for. Um, but <clears throat> what other advice can you give scholars for navigating the collection of papers more efficiently? Um, and this is especially concerning for a figure like Annie Nathan Meyer, who has quite a volume of documents in her collection. How do you make the decision what to linger on, what to ignore, that kind of thing? Right. No, those are all good points and good questions. Um, I think in my in my role as director of research and collections, I feel like it's my responsibility, particularly with students and young scholars, to really kind of start conversations early with them about coming to the archives and about what's involved and how we can best serve them and, and help them navigate the material. Because I think that really is uh, a perennial uh, issue that kind of cuts across all different disciplines and fields. Um, it's just like you said, it's it's overwhelming. And I think people don't realize often how long it takes to really go through the material. 
And, and because I also serve as director of the fellowship program, it gives me an opportunity to talk to these people and say, hey, you know, given your topic and given what we have here, you may want to consider applying for a fellowship, which gives you, you know, up to four weeks to spend, you mm-hmm. know, and we off, we help, we give you monies to help offset the cost of traveling to Cincinnati and staying in the city while you're doing the research. Um, mm-hmm. Because I could kind of gauge, right, wow, this person really doesn't, you know, understand how much material we really have. I mean, when you say 10 boxes, you think, okay, 10 boxes. But when 10 (laughs) boxes contain, you know, thousands of pieces of paper that you want to go through piece by piece, right? And we're only open for eight hours every day, um, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, it adds up. It really does. And, And people just don't have a sense of it until you're right in the middle of it, Yep. (laughs) you know? And and look, it is a learning process and that just has to happen. I mean, I can't do it. We can't do it for you. You have to just kind of, you know, it's like trial by fire. You know, it's um, you just have to do it yourself and learn as you go and you learn to be more efficient in your research. But as I said, with those kind of students and, and, and young scholars, I try to make it a point to really reach out to them and talk to them and prepare them. Uh, for for work at the archives. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to hold your hand the entire time you're here, right? I mean, I'm assuming that you kind of know what you're looking for. Although, mm-hmm. having just said that, um, we often tell people, you know, don't come with any kind of preconceived ideas about what you're going to find necessarily, right? Really be open to letting the documents guide you. Um, and that also might take more time, right? Because right. You, you, as you just said, you know, you find things that you didn't even know were there, or you kind of go off on these little tangents, right? Mm-hmm. Any kind of research like this, whether it be genealogical research, historical research, right? They're rabbit holes. There's so many rabbit holes that you can go down. And it's really only you can pull yourself back and say, look, I'm going to take a note of this. I'm going to come back to this if I have time. Mm-hmm. But right now, I need to focus on this. And uh, you know, and that's and that's what happens, right? And that's why we have repeat customers. When I establish relationships with researchers, it's the understanding. I have the understanding that these people are going to be coming back probably for many years to come, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is not a one-time visit. They're gonna they're gonna find that there's a lot of material here, and it's just too much to go through, and it's it's piqued their interest. And it's kind of filed in the back of their minds. And they just, you know, a few years down the road, hey, I want to come back. I remember seeing these files when I was here last time. And I want to make a point to focus on them this time around. So um, that's the kind of advice I can give really in terms of, you know, your first foray into an archive, into our archive. I imagine Mm -hmm. it's very similar uh, with other archival collections as well. So it does, it's, it's kind of partly... Um, communication with the archives, with the archivists, but also it's also kind of knowing yourself, knowing how you do research or at least learning how you do research Mm -hmm. and adapting and changing as you go along, right? Figuring out like, okay, this is not working. This is taking too long. Let's step back and reassess how I should go about doing this. And I'm, you know, we're here to offer advice as well, right? I kind of see what works, what doesn't. Some people come in and they come in with their cameras and all they want to do is take as many pictures as they can. They don't process. They don't really read. They just mm-hmm. want to take pictures and go through material. Other people want to sit. They want to take notes. They want to, you know, really spend time with the material. And that's fine. 
but understanding that it takes longer. Um, you know, some people want to break up their visits, like, you know, four weeks at one time is too much, right? Mm -hmm. So they want to come for two weeks and then they want to kind of take the material back home with them, sit with it, process it, and then come back again. That's the other thing too, is, um, knowing which archive to go to. So you have certain documents um, for, for Meyer, for instance, and then Barnard has certain documents for uh, for Meyer. And um, this idea that everything will, is located in one place for one author is kind of a myth, right? Um, and, right. And, I mean, that would be the fantasy that it was all right. donated to one collection, one archive, and it's just kind of, you know, waiting for me. But the reality is, they're often parsed out into different locations. Right. And I remind people too, that, you know, even though we have a kind of standalone collection for a given person, right. Mm -hmm. um, That person lived a full life, hopefully, and corresponded with people and, you know, did a lot of things professionally. So all of that may not be contained in the person's archive, which again, makes it even more daunting in some ways, right? Because I say to people, that's not the only place where Annie Nathan Myers, you know, material resides, right? Mm-hmm. You should look in this collection because she was good friends with this person, you know, and we have those papers. So I oh. imagine there's lots of letters, you know, that she sent to her and so on and so forth. So, or yeah. she was involved in, I don't know, the NAACP or other, you know, other organizations Um where, you know, some letters or some material of hers might reside. So there's kind of a a broader thinking about about a person and about a person's life and mm-hmm. and and their archives. So yeah, no, the idea that there's one place, a one-stop shop for for uh, research like this, you're right. it is it's a myth, and it's it would be nice, a fantasy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> alas, I mean, my own research took me to, you know, multiple countries and, and, you know, two years of archival research and like 10 different archives. And, and it was fun. I mean, it's fun, but you're, it's, it's tiring. It's, it's a lot, but I think that's kind of, you learn, it's just the way that research is done. Like a you scavenger know, like, hunt. <laughs> right. To your point earlier, right. There's an archive and then there's kind of the hidden archive. Um, uh, and, mm-hmm. and our hidden archive is, is as big, if not bigger, right. In some ways than our actual archive and that there's just so much material that we can't display or make available as as readily to the researcher and that's where it requires the researcher him or herself to kind of dig into that material and find those hidden voices mm-hmm. um the unheard voices right uh so many of these women did not have their own names right they were always mm-hmm. referred to by their husband's names right so trying to track down a woman's first name it's like looking for a needle in a haystack sometimes mm-hmm. it's really so frustrating and and that's what also takes time right is kind of looking for the things that aren't obvious right looking for the people who aren't necessarily on the front page or in the finding aid uh mm-hmm. but that you think are that you think may be there um, I was reflecting on Jonathan Sarna's um, book uh, where he published uh, by Cora Wilburn. You know, he found this mm. unpublished manuscript of Cora Wilburn's Casella Wayne. It was serialized literature, but he found it in another collection in our archive, right? In a congregational uh, collection. And, you know, he had seen it years and years ago, and um, it really was not. Uh, 
spoken of kind of in its time. And it would have been lost to history, really, if if Dr. Sarna had not kind of seen it, remembered it, gone back to it and said, you know what, I'm going to do a little bit more research into this core Wilburn. And then suddenly we have another voice, right? Another woman's voice uh, and and a greater insight into uh, American Jewish literature in the 19th century because Mm -hmm. of this this manuscript that he happened to find. Uh, in our archive. So, Very cool. you know, there's there's still discoveries to be made, yeah. which is exciting. Uh, it just takes diligence on the part of the researcher and uh, patience and time and investment. And I know that that's, those are, those are commodities that uh, <laughs> nowadays are hard to come by. Thank you so oh, much. It was my pleasure. And I hope this is, uh, you know, I hope this is helpful to people. I'm sure it will be. My edition of Helen Brent, MD, won honorable mention for the 2021 Society for the Study of American Women Writers Book Edition Award. With me for the next segment of today's episode is the first place winner of the Saw Book Edition Award, Lori Harrison Kahn, who won for the Superwoman and Other Writings by Miriam Michelson. Hi, Lori. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Stephanie. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about recovery with you. So you and I met at the award ceremony over a year ago, but I've since read your introduction to the Superwoman. Tell us who you are as a scholar and who Miriam Michelson is. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of the practice of English at Boston College, where I also teach in the American Studies program. In addition to the Superwoman and other writings, I recently reissued an edition of Emma Wolfe's 1900 novel, Heirs of Yesterday, co-edited with Barbara Cantalupo. Both of those books were published by Wayne State University Press. And I'm currently working on my third recovery project, a Penguin Classics edition of Elizabeth Garber Jordan's writings, which I'm co-editing with Jane Carr. These are three related, but also very different recovery projects. Michelson was a suffrage activist and the author of feminist fiction, such as The Superwoman. This feminist utopia novella, which is about a matriarchal society, appeared in the magazine The Smart Set in 1912 and was first republished in book form in 2019 when it became the title piece in my collection of her writings. Michelson got her start, however, as a newspaper journalist working for major San Francisco dailies in the 1890s, as well as briefly in Philadelphia. So my collection includes selections of her literary journalism and short fiction, much of which was serialized in mass circulation magazines, in addition to the novella. With Emma Wolfe, Barbara Cantalupo and I reissued a single novel, much as you did with Helen Brent, MD. This process involved writing an introduction and footnotes to contextualize Heirs of Yesterday as an early Jewish American novel dealing with middle-class Jewish life in late 19th century San Francisco. Lori represents a mid-career perspective and the perspective of someone who is non-tenured and has valuable experience in terms of the challenges of doing research while prioritizing teaching. And 
I, of course, you've published extensively. Can you tell us about how your research project started? As in, where did the impetus for archival and recovery work begin as part of your larger research project? So first, Stephanie, I wanted to say that as someone who works on Anne Nathan Meyer, um, I am so grateful for your wonderful edition of Helen Brent, MD, um, which is an important novel, not only for medical fiction, but also as an early work by a Jewish American writer. And in this case, a Sephardic Jewish writer, a perspective that has often been neglected in Jewish American literary history. My own interest in recovery initially emerged from attempts to expand the turn of the 20th century Jewish American literary canon. My recovery project, uh, Michelson and Wolf, came about because I was working on a monograph titled West of the Ghetto, Pioneering Women Writers and Jewish American Literary Culture. That monograph uncovers an archive of writings by Jewish women who were based in San Francisco at the turn of the 20th century. The title West of the Ghetto draws attention to the fact that the familiar canon of Jewish American literature from this period has been dominated by ghetto narratives, focusing on the experiences of newly arrived Eastern European immigrants, mostly in New York. This monograph actually began with Emma Wolf. Although Wolf is often cited as the first Jewish American woman novelist, she is little known. Even many scholars of Jewish American literature have not read her work. But in 2002, Barbara Cantalupo reissued Wolf's 1892 novel about interfaith marriage, that novel's titled Other Things Being Equal. When I read that book, I initially figured that Wolf was an anomaly as a middle-class Jewish writer from the West Coast amidst all these New York-centric immigrant narratives we associate with the era. But as I began to do my own research on Wolf, looking through historical periodicals, I noticed that her name appeared alongside other California Jewish writers, including that of Miriam Michelson. So it was really these brief references in primary sources that came up as I was doing research for both of my monographs that led me to these recovery projects. As you know from previous conversations that we've had together, one of the main reasons that I recovered Helen Brent MD is because there just wasn't a good edition for use in the classroom. The only usable text was the Scholar's Choice edition, and it was still missing pages and in poor typeset, just like the Hathi Trust versions. How has teaching influenced the way that you recover texts, whether in choosing a publisher or in writing the introduction or selecting appendix materials? Teaching is definitely integral to my recovery work. Um, Michelson was an extremely prolific writer. She published hundreds of newspaper articles. So I had to make some difficult decisions about what to include and exclude from the collection. And I made those decisions by asking myself which of her works were the most teachable. Um, and I didn't simply ask myself that question. I also got students input um, as well. I tried out many of the selections in the classroom and had undergraduate research assistants weigh in on which of her pieces they would want to discuss with peers. For this reason, um, because teaching is so central to what we do when we're working on recovery projects, it's also important that the introduction be written in an accessible style and that it will not only provide information and background, but also generate questions for students to consider while they are reading the, the primary texts. 
You mentioned appendix material. I haven't included uh, appendices in my editions, but I want to emphasize how important footnotes are for recovery work in terms of contextualizing unfamiliar uh, references. Uh, There too, before publishing my editions, I rely on students to tell me which references need explanatory footnotes. And just to give another example, with Heirs of Yesterday, the, the novel includes Yiddish, German, and French. And Barbara and I wanted to um, have footnotes that would do justice to the multilingual aspect of that text. Um, So we ended up hiring an amazing translator, Jessica Kurzain, um, who herself has recovered and translated several important works of Yiddish women's writing to help with that process. The publisher you're working with also has an influence on these paratextual elements, of course. Um, An academic edition like the ones I've done with Wayne State University Press gives you a lot of space for the introduction and footnotes. With a press like Broadview, just to give another example, um, the appendices become a crucial part of the recovery project. Um, And Stephanie, you know this from the work that um, you're doing with Broadview um, uh, uh, for the edition of Angelina Well Grimke's Rachel. And then with Penguin Classics, just to give yet another example of how uh, the publisher plays such an important role um, in certain recovery decisions. So with Penguin, Penguin, the introductions tend to be much shorter. And this is in part because they're marketing to a broader audience of general readers. So in that case, with the Jordan Project, my co-editor and I found that we are relying in part on the list of suggestions for further reading to provide necessary context. You collaborate frequently with other scholars and students in the production of book editions. Can you tell us more about that? Mm -hmm. Um, So in addition to collaborating with students um, on recovery, I've had several opportunities to collaborate with other scholar editors. I was really lucky, for example, that I connected with Barbara Cantalupo after reading her reissue of Other Things Being Equal. And also she published a collection of of Wolf's short stories, uh, stories that had originally been published in the smart set. When Barbara and I initially connected, she was working on a biography of Emma Wolf, um, and we began to share resources. Ultimately, we realized that rather than a biography, a more valuable contribution would be a reissue of Wolf's 1900 novel, Heirs of Yesterday. I wanted to say that teaming up with a tenured scholar was really fortunate for me. As you mentioned, I'm a contingent faculty member, which means I don't have substantial institutional support for research, nor the leave time from teaching to visit archives. Um, So, and I wanted to mention this because as we talk about archives and recovery, it's important to consider who does and doesn't have access to the resources necessary to do this work. The Superwoman and Other Writings was made possible because of the undergraduate research fellowship program at Boston College. I mentioned briefly my work with students, um, and this is a program in which students um, are assigned to work with um, faculty members and get paid for doing research for them. So uh, this was really crucial uh, with the Michelson project because Michelson worked as a reporter. I mentioned she was extremely prolific and she worked for a number of different newspapers. And um, at the time that I was doing this work, most of those newspapers were only available on microfilm. Um, So this meant that students were going through the reels and reels of microfilm, um, you know, just day by day in order to find articles with Michelson's bylines. Um, And students also did the work of helping me decide which articles were worthy of republication. As I mentioned, it's so important to have that student perspective on what 
what would be usable in the classroom? What are they even interested in talking about? Um, and then students also transcribed the articles for me um, and identified references that needed footnotes, as I mentioned, and then even helped me do the research for those footnotes. So to clarify, the students with whom you collaborated were not students in your classes. Um, so in other words, the recovery work was not embedded as an assignment in your class. Yes, so to some extent that's true. I had research assistants working with me, but I also, students in my classes did help in the sense that I would give them some of the selections I was considering um, reprinting in the classroom and talk them through the recovery process and they would give me feedback on which pieces they thought were worthy of republication. So I'm doing a similar kind of thing in my class in the spring. Um, I'm embedding a transcription project in both my graduate and undergraduate courses. They'll be given a scene from Grimke's Mara to transcribe from its handwritten form into TypeScript. Um, so the transcription work that you're describing. Can you talk a little bit about material challenges you faced with physical documents? Um, so one of the challenges that I've had is matching handwritten letters to one another so I can decipher words. It's it's easier with Grimke um, than it was with Annie and Nathan Meyer. I was uh, I've been transcribing Meyer's letters and diary entries, and it took what felt like six months or more to figure out the phrase. Um, levers her tact, which she means like leverage, right? Leverages her her language to convince someone of a position. Um it's it's used in the sketch of a feminist dystopian novel that Meyer has an idea for. And she's writing, of course, in her diaries in shorthand, in addition to writing certain letters in different ways. So an S will look one way one time and it will look a different way another time, which is really confusing. That's the kind of challenges that I've faced. And maybe your students have had similar ones or you have too. Yes, um, so I exactly similar challenges with deciphering handwriting. You're always so relieved at that moment in the archive when you get to, to typewritten documents and your life becomes so much easier. But actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think it was students who first um, helped me realize that one way to do that deciphering is that if you had a, a picture of the archival material, you then on your phone can kind of zoom in. Um, and that was one way to often decipher um, some things that initially when I was seeing the actual document in the, in the archive, I had trouble deciphering. In the process of planning this podcast episode, Lori and I decided to invite Mary Chapman, a senior scholar in the field of 19th century American women's literature, to join us in this conversation. Lori and I have learned so much from Chapman's work. Mary, would you introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks, Stephanie and Lori. It's an honor to join you both in conversation. I'm a professor of English at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I've worked on recovering the works of American women writers for much of my career. So my monograph, Making Noise, Making News, Suffrage, Print Culture, and U.S. Modernism, also won the SSAWW Book Awards we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I also co-edited with an independent scholar named Angela Mills, Treacherous Texts, U.S. Suffrage Literature, 1846 to 1946. And recently, I acted as the features editor at Legacy, and I've recently edited Becoming Suisse and Far, Early Fiction, Journalism, and Travel Writing by Edith Maud Eaton. So those are the books that I've been publishing, but recently I pivoted to doing a digital edition. So I currently direct the Winifred Eaton Archive, which is a digital website of the collected works of the writer best known as an Watana. 
Let's set some groundwork for the audience. Who are the Eaton sisters and what intrigues you about them? So many things. Where do I start? The Eatons were two Chinese North American writers who published fiction, journalism, and poetry from about the 1890s on. And Winifred actually wrote screenplays and served as the scenario, uh, the head of the scenario uh, department at Universal Studios in Hollywood. So they're both acknowledged as the founders of Asian American literature. Edith published much of her work under a Cantonese pen name, she assumed, Sui Sinfar, which kind of acknowledges her Chinese ancestry. But Winifred problematically assumed not just a Japanese pen name, Anato Watana, but also a Japanese persona. She, she wore kimonos. She pretended she was Japanese. She sort of spoke with a sort of halting English, uh, an accent. So what intrigues me about them is they're often described as the good and bad Eaton sisters based on the kind of relationship they had with their um, Chinese background. But my research has actually uncovered many more name, pen names for both of them, many more unknown works for um, both of them. And these works show that each of them was much more complicated than simply good and bad. Could you say a little about how your archival and recovery project on Edith Eaton began? Sure. It's, it's so amazing to me how chance discoveries and intuition lead us to our scholarly projects. So in my case, when I was researching Making Noise, Making News, and I was working on the chapter about Edith Eaton because she had a sort of ambivalent uh, relationship to the suffrage movement. I, I was really tired. I had no energy to do anything else, but I was just idly Googling her name in Google Books. And lo and behold, I stumbled on a story that was set during the Alaska Gold Rush and the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. So this is not her typical uh, terrain. So that sent me down a rabbit hole searching for more works by her that explored settings and themes beyond her Chinatown chronicles. And since then, I've more than quadrupled her oeuvre. These works that I've discovered demonstrate that she's She's playing with a lot of subjectivities. She's ventriloquizing the perspectives of other ethnic and racial groups. She's even toyed with blackface, which to my mind um, takes her kind of out of the good Eaton sister category. So that short story that you found is titled The Alaska Widow, um, just for context That's right. for our audience. That's um, Mary, you mentioned that your work on the Eatons required that you visit multiple archives. Which archives did you visit? Yeah, I feel like it was a long process that combined interlibrary loans, um, sending my grad students to some archives to get experience using them, and visiting um, archives myself. So 
I definitely looked at letters that Edith had written to Century Magazine, which are housed at the New York Public Library. Um, I was uh, I requested loans from the Autry Center, which is now called the Southwest Museum, the Huntington Library. I had to explore some Canadian archives because both um, Edith and Winifred grew up in Montreal, so I went to the Archive Nationale du Québec, and I also consulted many newspaper databases. For Winifred, I've used um, newspaper databases and digitized periodicals because in the time between starting the project on Edith and starting the project on Winifred, lots of periodicals have been digitized and COVID has also intervened. Um, but I, I worked most closely in Winifred's case with special collections at the University of Calgary in Alberta because they hold her bonds, which include manuscripts, screenplays, letters, just uh, scrapbooks. She assembled unbelievable, like a 70-page finding aid. So that tells you just how many things they have in that collection. Yes. Um, you mentioned that you used interlibrary loan um, to access archival texts, and I, I had to do that once too, but this was pre-COVID. Um, when I was writing my dissertation and from about 2015 to 2017, I acquired Rebecca Harding Davis's Kitty's Choice, A Story of Barrett, Barrytown, published in 1873, um, from the Library of Congress through Interlibrary Loan. I did not know that they were going to send me a microfilm of the novella. That was not that was not what I was expecting. Um, but lo and behold, a microfilm appeared and I had to learn how to use the machine. And then I had to transfer um, each page of the microfilm of the of the novella um, to PDF one page at a time sitting in the basement of the University of Texas Arlington Library. And so I often think of archival and recovery work as an individual and therefore lonely experience. And that's because I've spent as long as a week at a time working alone in the reading room of archives, sorting through documents, taking photos, uploading them to my computer, naming and organizing files and folders, having librarians scan copies for me, those kinds of tasks. I mentioned in uh, my discussion with Dana Herman earlier in this episode um, that when I was at the American Jewish Archives, I slept at the dormitories um, and I would actually have to set an alarm on my phone so I would wake up in time to have breakfast before the archives open and then I would make a plan over breakfast as to what folders I was going to sort through that day. And then I just did the work until the archives closed. I had to hold myself accountable and create my own schedule each day. And I will admit the first couple of days were delightful because I got a vacation from being a mom. But by day four or five, the monotony of the process wore on me. Absolutely. I think everyone finds that kind of research can be lonely. But when I was doing archival research for the anthology Treacherous Texts, I started a habit of taking research slash spa vacations immediately after classes ended. So I'd jump on a plane, grade papers, then I'd spend full days in the archive. And every night I would treat myself to a nice dinner with a friend who lived in town or a facial or go to the opera. And these things helped me recharge for the next day. So when I returned from my trips, my colleagues were still grading and I had miraculously gotten mine all graded on the plane. That's fabulous. I love that. 
could you guys speak a little bit, both Lori's still here with us. Um, could Lori and Mary both speak a little bit to how archival work has shifted for either of you in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, so for instance, I was supposed to visit the physical archives at Moreland Spingarn Research Center of Howard University during the summer of 2020. But of course, that trip got canceled due to quarantine. So the university archivist, Sonia Woods, graciously sent me a FedEx certified package delivery of Angelina Wellgrimke's play, Mara. And it was a huge package because Grimke wrote certain scenes three or four times. So every rewrite was contained in that package. Sonia also sent me other odds and ends like performance reviews and book reviews of Rachel. I just didn't know that that kind of distance learning was allowed in archival and recovery work. I didn't know that they would actually send things to you like that. And I think part of what has been useful about this conversation is learning what you can do and then how to start doing it. I, I had a similar experience, Stephanie, um, in that um, I had a, a our archival trip planned for the summer of 2020 that was canceled. And I'm finally go going to be taking it this coming summer, which I'm really excited about. Um, but some of what you're describing, I had already experienced pre-COVID. Um, so I didn't have research funds or time off from teaching to travel to archives. As a result, I often relied on archivists to find and scan material for me. Um, Mary mentioned the records for the Century Company at the New York Public Library. Um, and I had been in touch with an archivist there who in 2016 told me that they were gonna digitize the entire collection, um, which turned out to be incredibly fortunate because Miriam Michelson had published in the magazine Century. And it turned out that there was some really fascinating correspondence between her and the editors that I would have not seen if it weren't for that digitization. I think it's also helpful for our listeners to know that as a result of COVID, many archives are now offering virtual reading room hours. Um, so an archivist will share materials with you over a video call. So the Huntington Library is one example of an archive that has expanded access in this way. So COVID certainly created challenges for archival research, but it has also created new opportunities. Um, and I have to say that they're you know, despite all this thinking about some of the um, the ways that I've gained access digitally, I still think there's really nothing like the experience of going to a physical archive and holding those original papers in your hands. I totally agree. Me too. Um, one thing that really uh, that I miss about going to physical archives is you never know what is going to capture your attention when a, when a folder comes or a box comes you can pretty quickly see if there's something in there that you that you wanted. But if you're just looking at a finding aid and ordering something, you hesitate to ask someone to digitize it for you, you know, to scan it for you. I was so grateful to you of Calgary librarians because they generously scanned manuscripts for me during COVID. And I tried to return the favor by correcting any errors that I discovered in their 70 page finding aid. And we all have to realize that librarians are our best friends and we owe them big. But the isolation of COVID paradoxically made the Winifred Eaton Archive team really come together. So senior consultant Jean Lee Cole was in Baltimore, the technical director Joey Takeda and the program manager Sydney Lines were here in Vancouver, and the four of us met on Zoom regularly, and we were able to share 
are, you know, to sort of launch the archive with scholars around the world via Zoom webinars and conferences. So it's it's been an interesting cultural shift, I think, to mm-hmm. go through COVID. Perhaps it isn't coincidental that all of us work with women writers active during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. After all, the three of us run in many of the same organizational circles, including SAW and C19. So what about this period is ripe for archival and recovery work in from your perspective? The end of the 19th century was an incredibly fertile period for American women writers in general. And this is connected to the fact that the suffrage movement was burgeoning and building in this period. Um, in the absence of the vote, literature became a means of democratic participation. And as Mary's work has shown, women writers were using print culture in varied ways to agitate for the vote. Michelson is a great example of this as someone who began her career as a newspaper reporter and later serialized her stories in mass circulation magazines and then published them as novels. So we're seeing her using these multiple forms of print media, um, you know, all with kind of feminist messages and using that um, in terms of um, engaging uh, just a means of engaging with the politics of the suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The 1890s and early 20th century were such a vital time for print culture. Women writers, especially those who publish much of their work in periodicals, haven't gotten as much scholarly attention as they deserve because scholarly scholarly thinking has focused on novels. But because many of these women wrote under pen names, It can take a lot of detective work to assemble their oeuvre. And for some, the material conditions meant that their papers weren't preserved. So, for example, Edith Eaton moved back and forth from West to East Coast several times in her career. And she would just pack all her belongings in a trunk and put it on a train. So once she lost all her manuscripts when the train caught fire. But if we're lucky, descendants or interlocutors save some of these writers' works. So I mentioned, for example, that the University of Calgary has Winifred's papers. That's because her daughter donated them. Mary's observation about periodicals is borne out by my research on Michelson. Michelson published novels, um, but one of her most important works, um, she published novels, I should say, as standalone books, but one of her most important works was The Superwoman, which was only published in a periodical, The Smart Set, in 1912. I've also, I argue in my introduction to the Superwoman and other writings that this novel inspired Charlotte Perkins Gilman's novella, Herland, uh, which is now a feminist classic and also a feminist feminist utopian narrative. Um, and that we, you know, I, I think we we sometimes forget that that novella is also only known to us today because of a feminist recovery project. So Gilman originally published it in 1915 in a periodical, in this case, her self-published magazine, The Forerunner. Um, and it was only in the 1970s that it was republished in book form. Mary and I have also discovered a similar archival trend with the women we research. Um, I think Mary alluded to this before. In the cases of women writers like Michelson, Wolf, Jordan, and Suisenfar, um, they remained single and didn't have children, so they didn't have direct descendants. And in those cases, it's unlikely that they're going to be substantial 
archival papers, right? There's no partner or child doing the work of preserving the writer's legacy. Um, so in Michelson's case, just to give an example, I've been able to piece together her story only because of her relationship to famous men. Um, so one of her brothers, for example, was a physicist who won the Nobel Prize, and there had been biographies written about him, Albert um, Abraham Michelson, and that kind of gave me many leads in terms of piecing together um, Miriam Michelson's story. And there are very few archives that hold um, any of her materials. I mentioned the Century Company archives, which had letters she had written to, to editors there. Um, she also had an extensive correspondence with Joseph Goodman, um, who was the editor of the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise and is best known for discovering Mark Twain. I should say that Michelson also um, is from Virginia City. Um, so that was her connection to Goodman. Um, and so one of the few places that I was able to find materials related to Michelson were in the Joseph Goodman papers at the Bancroft Library. He had kept um, her correspondence to him. Um, and um, so it was really just that, the Goodman papers and the business records of um, companies like Century Company that had published her work where I was able to access um, uh, those kind of original archival materials beyond her, her primary text, her writing. All three of us have produced print editions in the process of recovering women writers and their texts. How did you decide that these specific writers and their texts are worth recovering? And then how do we as scholars more generally decide who is worth recovering? This is such a great question. Um, with Michelson, I felt it was important to have a collection that would allow readers to explore the interplay between her journalism and fiction. Um, so um, you could see if you're reading the, those works, how she used fictional techniques in her literary journalism, and then how she drew on journalistic stories as the inspiration for a lot of her fiction. I also mentioned um, this entire this series, um, another magazine series that she published called a Yellow Journalist in the Saturday Evening Post. Um, and this was a fictionalized and highly sensationalized version of her own experiences working as a reporter in the era of yellow journalism. I wanted to say, though, that there were moments that made me question whether to recover Michelson's work. Um, and a lot of this had to do with her white feminist perspective. Um, so it's evident, for example, in the way that she writes about Chinese immigrants, um, as well as Black and Indigenous women. So, I mean, I think in the time we would probably think of her as socially progressive in terms of her views, but from our current standpoint, um, we would often think about the way she wrote as being problematic. Um, so in many ways, it was actually working with undergraduates um, and trying out some of her writings in the classroom that convinced me that she needed to be recovered. Uh, we had so many rich discussions about her white feminism and about her racial blind spots that made me think that these works uh, were going to um, be, you know, rich materials for a larger audience as well. Yeah, I, I find that sometimes you just can't anticipate how a text will fly with students. So for example, when I taught Michelson in a class about suffrage literature using Laurie's anthology, I included her interview with a cross-dresser in a dime museum to show students how progressive she was in a way, how open and 
curious she was about gender, but I was I was surprised that the students read Michelson's mixing of pronouns and other moves in terms of a kind of proto-turfness. I had a similar experience teaching that interview. Um, and with the Superwoman too, some students saw it as radical for gender politics, while others viewed Michelson's feminist utopia as an example of fascism. Um, but that's what makes her work worth recovering, the varied and nuanced interpretations that it generates. Yeah, I find that it's really hard to decide who is worth recovering and which texts are worth recovering. But I think that so often we come to writers solely through the works that have been anthologized, and we really know them so narrowly. I mean, one example I think of all the time is Langston Hughes, you know, three poems that everybody's read, and then there are all these other things that he did that we have no idea about. So when I stumbled on Alaska Widow, the short story about the Philippines and Alaska, it became clear to me that Edith Eaton was so much more prolific and more complicated than we thought. And I was quite confident that scholars of Asian American literature would be interested, women's literature scholars would be interested to learn more about her. And she she her her career connects with other woman writers whose careers are similar and so the kind of interaction between michelson and eaton and others those kinds of opportunities convinced me she would be worth recovering the other thing i would say is the lives of the earliest chinese in north america are really anonymous. You know, we know they were railroad workers. We know they were gold rush, uh, gold miners, but we know very little about people, their names, their families, their experiences. And in becoming Sui Sinfar, I was able to collect early Montreal journalism about real people, their businesses, their families, their dreams. And Edith's journalism says their names. So um, that was very exciting to me. I should note that Becoming Sui Sinfar is mostly about her earliest uh, writing. So it's mostly about Montreal Chinese. So I knew that Canadian literature scholars would be interested in her work. And that's why I published with the Canadian press, McGill Queens. That made sense to me. first met Bridget Fielder at the C-19 conference last March 2022 in Miami through the Critical Childhood Studies Cluster Lunch. But like many in our audience, I was familiar with Bridget's work prior to meeting her. I engage with relative races, genealogies of interracial kinship in 19th century America in my own book, Prescription Narratives. And I love your public humanities pieces, especially the one that came out in New York Times book review last March during the conference. It's titled, Give the Children Their Poems and the Stories of Their Own People. Can you tell us a little more about yourself as a scholar? 
Thank you so much, Stephanie. So I'm trained as a 19th century Americanist, and these days I work mostly on early African-American literature and sometimes transatlantic literature dealing with race from the late 18th century up through about the Harlem Renaissance. Much of my focus has been on African-American women writers, and I've been increasingly interested in Black writing for children from all periods up through the present. And I want to mention that the title of that New York Times book review piece comes from Alice Dunbar Nelson's 1922 essay, Negro Literature for Negro Pupils. And it's a great reminder that Black authors, editors, and educators have long acknowledged the existence of African-American writing for readers of all ages, even when that work has not been readily available to them. Dunbar Nelson acknowledges the existence of this body of work, and she makes a curricular argument for including it. I think a lot of the work that I do now is actually so exciting to me because it has expanded the curriculum that I was offered as an early student in predominantly white educational institutions. You say in your article from the New York Times Book Review, Black children's literature has a long history, although early examples are not always easy to find, but some of this material is being recovered for the 20, for 21st century readers, end quote. You give a number of important and now recognizable examples, Jesse Redmond Fawcett, Jupiter Hammond, Phyllis Wheatley, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Can you tell us about the recovery work that you're doing right now? I've been working recently on an exciting project with some colleagues, Jean Lutz at Villanova University and Denise Berger from the University of Delaware and the Colored Conventions Project. Um, we are working to recover a collection of Alice Dunbar Nelson's writing about children, the Annals of Steen Street. These stories were originally written in the 1890s, and some of them at least were published individually in periodicals. Dunbar Nelson had revised several of these, intending them to be published as a collection. Jean, Denise, and I are working on a long-term project to make these stories available to 21st century readers. Because we want them to be available more broadly, including for children and children's educators, we're working on a digital edition. And in this segment of the podcast, I would like to turn our attention towards digital archives as a form of recovery work. In the first segment of the episode, we talked about working in the physical archives for to find material for research and recovery. We talked to archivist Dana Herman about her experience managing collections and papers at the American Jewish Archives. Then during the second segment, Lori Harrison Kahn and Mary Chapman and I discussed our recent book edition recovery works on a variety of women writers, including Miriam Michelson, Emma Wolf, Suisen Farr, or Edith Eaton, Annie Nathan Meyer, and Angelina Weld Grimke. Now I'd like to turn from paper to screen, so to speak. So you mentioned you're working on the Stance Street Project, while um, Mary previously mentioned um, that she works on the Winifred Eden Archive uh, earlier in the episode. And I am in the stages, early stages, of building an open access archive on long 19th century medicine and literature, similar to Sarah Ruffing Robbins' Teaching Transatlanticism Archive. In fact, I was inspired by Robbins as my students have been contributing materials to her archive for the past year. And to my knowledge, there is not a print or digital anthology devoted to the field of C-19 medicine and literature. How did you get started on the Steen Street Project? What advice do you have for an early career scholar like myself working on their first digital archive project? So in 2016, Legacy, a journal of American women writers, published a forum on recovering Alice Dunbar Nelson for the 21st century. It was edited by Catherine Adams, Carolyn Gebhard, and Sandra Zagarell. This included publishing Dunbar Nelson's short story, His Heart's Desire, 
taken from an undated, hand-corrected typescript held at the University of Delaware Archives. I wrote an article about this version of the story, also published in Legacy. Jean Lutz later found and wrote about a published version of this story in a June 1900 issue of the Chicago Daily News. So Jean approached me because I had written about the other version of the story, and she had information about Dunbar Nelson's planned collection and the publication of other stories, including those that aren't included in the Schoenberg three-volume collection of her work. I'd previously worked on digital recovery projects with Just Teach One, Early African-American Print, a project hosted by the American Antiquarian Society, recovering a digital edition of Frances Harper's first poetry collection, Forest Leaves, with Joanna Ortner and Alex Black, and some excerpts from the weekly Anglo-African and Pine and Palm newspapers with Derek Spires and Cassandra Smith. The early African-American print coordinators had been talking about making our project a bit more public-facing to reach audiences beyond academia, and this is something we're looking to do in the new year. And so I just got suggested to Jean that we work on something that would be freely available and accessible to a broader audience, including educators and children. We thought about who else we wanted to work with, and Denise Berger's name quickly came to mind. I'd met her at conferences but didn't know her well. I did know, however, that she'd long been a member of the Color Conventions Project team. I hope listeners not already familiar with this fantastic digital project will make themselves aware of this and the fabulous work scholars like Gabrielle Foreman and Jim Casey have done. Denise brought a wealth of experience on digital humanities work to our discussions of Dunbar Nelson. For early career scholars, I think the most important point to consider would be, who do you want to recover this work for and why? As we plan to recover the previously published version of His Heart's Desire, we consider the importance of making African-American literature available beyond our academic institutions. What began as a recovery project has led us also to things like public events. We've also been working with public school educators in the Philadelphia School District to talk about what tools they might need to teach this children's story in their majority Black classrooms. And we've been having conversations with curriculum and instruction specialists and planning professional development sessions on teaching the work of other African-American women intellectuals. Alongside the digital edition of Dunbar Nelson's story, we'll be releasing a series of short videos in which African-American women educators read selected passages of texts, including Dunbar Nelson's Negro Literature for Negro Pupils um, and by other early African-American women intellectuals. This kind of collaborative work has been some of the most exciting and fulfilling of my career so far. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about how so many of our projects emerge out of our teaching. Um, So it's interesting that you mentioned your work with Philadelphia School District. um, And why do you want to recover this work and, and for what audience, right, as part of the sort of impetus behind building a digital archive project? Um, I think that's been behind my own um, thought process as I I build this, you know, C-19 Medicine and Literature Archive with um, Stefan Schoberlin, who we recently hired at my university, Texas A&M, Central Texas. Part of the reason why I was thinking about this is because the teaching transatlanticism digital archive um, I use so much in my undergraduate classroom It's because it's free and accessible to the public, right? And I think that's one of the most important things to think about what kinds of texts we're making free and accessible to the public that you don't have to purchase as yet another textbook 
in a, in a course in which students are underprivileged and may not have the financial resources to purchase as many textbooks as, as are required of them for their degree. Speaking of the kind of collaborative work behind um, these projects, I recently began work as the assistant editor of Utopian Studies Academic Journal, and already over the past month in doing this work, I have noticed similarities between editing a digital archive and editing an academic journal, especially in terms of the kind of decisions that you have to make about curation, and for whom, for your audience. For instance, deciding what texts make it to publication and then what form their appearance takes in that final print version. So in thinking about your, your work as the co-editor of J19 and editing the features section of Legacy, what similarities do you see between the experience of editing a digital archive versus editing an academic journal? The first similarity that I see between editing a digital archive and editing an academic journal is the ways that both of these kinds of work are essential to what many of us do as scholars, um, including in our classrooms, and yet they are similarly devalued and unsupported by our institutions. This devaluation exacerbates existing disparities in both the infrastructures available to work on historically marginalized authors or genres and the continued marginalization of scholars who work on these areas. And while white women and people of color have had to do more work to ensure that we are represented among the materials available for study historically, um, this is extra work that we end up doing for our classrooms, for our fields, um, than if we were to just work on the canonical writers that had been taught since you know early in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, we have to do this in addition to the kinds of work that will be valued for things like tenure and promotion. And meanwhile, people in less secure or non-tenured positions are too often urged to forego this type of work for other things like writing journal articles or monographs that our institutions value more highly. Absolutely. This work is undervalued. And I, I wonder sometimes if that is because it is a kind of invisible labor. Um, you have a final product, of course, which you had a hand in curating as editor, but the work of curating leaves less of a visible trail since its end goal is to showcase the work of other writers rather than your own physical material contribution. As a result, I've, I've found it humbling work. Yes, I and I, I do understand the, um, the way that editorial work um, fades into the background, but I'm finding it increasingly pedagogically important mm -hmm. to articulate that work and to make it more visible to my students. Um, you know, we have to have these conversations, I think, about how this work comes to us um, in order to understand something like um, the history of um, uh, white women's recovery work and how that comes uh, into canonization and anthologization or the history of um, building the African-American canon uh, uh, continually being reshaped by the kind of recovery work that makes um, the array of texts that I can teach in my classes very different than just what would have been available to me um, as a student um, many, many years ago. Absolutely. 100% agree. Thank you so much for joining us, Bridget. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? 
Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.